Welcome, Colin. Uh, you're here today to talk about propaganda. And I think the, uh, obj- the objective today, I guess, is to give us a sense of what propaganda is about. Uh, in my extensive research, I uh, googled uh, the, uh, the propaganda beforehand and found uh, a sort of let's call it a working definition from the uh, from the Britannica, and uh, they go with propaganda is dissemination of information, facts, arguments, rumors, half-truths, or lies to influence public opinion. Propaganda is the more or less systematic effort to manipulate other people's beliefs, attitudes, or actions by means of symbols, words, gestures, banners, monuments, music, clothing, sorry, music, clothing, insignia, hairstyles, designs, archives, and postage stamps, and so forth. Now, how would you appraise that as a as a as a working definition let's say of propaganda yeah i'd say that was one of the better ones that i've read they have many of the key elements to a strong working definition of the term the first thing is that it's about manipulation and therefore it is propaganda is always self-interested or indeed whoever your master is that you are serving in doing so so There's an element of self-interest. There's an element of manipulation. It goes beyond words and deeds and immerses itself within a a cultural context through symbolism, as was mentioned in the definition. It's also about a mass audience. So this isn't, um, this is a one-to-many communication. And it tends to be not just about publics. It can be it can be narrow cast as well as broadcast, I think is the, the, perhaps the better way to say it in terms of there can be a, a target audience can be of various, various definitions, various structures behind it. The key thing, though, is that there is an intent to do so. So you can't do propaganda by accident. Essentially, there has to be a concerted, proactive effort on the part of the source to move or to retain some purpose in who the target audience is. So it's deliberateness. There has to be a degree of deliberateness. There, are, There is a deliberateness to it. Now, now, I will say that comes with a bit of a caveat in that through ideological means, often people become propagandists without perhaps acknowledging the full extent to which they are a propagandist. So you have people who are professional communicators, marketeers, advertisers, people working in the PR industries, university lecturers, all these sorts of people who you would classify as being kind of regular propagandists. But then we move into perhaps the age of social media, where you can say that we are all broadcasting in some form or another, and therefore we are all propagandists. Now, What that kind of means for the subject of propaganda studies, propaganda theory is kind of, there's a kind of an enlargement of of the the variety of sources. Now, the the additional issue here is that most or a substantial amount of people who are propagandists do not recognise themselves as being propagandists because the the, the term which you kind of allude to there, the term is attached with all manner of negative connotations, particularly around misinformation, disinformation, lying, as as constantly said in 1928, uh, the defilement of the human soul. 
<laughs> i.e. getting somebody to do something which they, if they had been left to their own devices, probably wouldn't do because it's not in their in their best interests. To, Advertising. To do so. You know, so if you look at, for example, the capitalist desire machine around advertising, as you say, this idea that, you know, put on this aftershave, wear these garments and you'll be super hot and sexy. uh, Essentially, is bullshit. So but it's about creating that bond, that emotional bond. And that's the perhaps the point which propaganda, which your definition doesn't cover. Sorry, not your definition, the one you read out cover is that propaganda seeks to, well, the, the highest, uh, one of the highest arts in propaganda is to get you to think that you are engaging logically when you are not, and to get you to essentially be um, working from an emotional point of view. So propaganda doesn't really care much for logic. It cares, and for rationality. It essentially wants you to... Um, it wants to create an emotional reaction in you. It wants to create an emotional bond. Um, and that perhaps is the highest art or one of the highest arts in propaganda. I suppose one of the things that I want to sort of, uh, I would like to follow up on that is the, one of the things you said was about this uh, distinction between, intriguing me, between sort of broadcast and narrowcast. Hmm. So in some sense, we all think of propaganda as something that involves mass communication, mass manipulation. And so we think of, you know, I don't know, you know, Joseph Goebbels, you know, in the 1930s and 40s in Germany. We think of, uh, you know, the documentaries of Lena Riefenstahl. We think of these big, huge stadium effects uh, and, 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 and all the rest of it. But the that interesting of that, that sense of a narrow cast means, so it could still be working at a broadcast, but it could be working on a more sort of one-to-one level more broadly, I guess, would be the way to put it. So well, I'll give you an example. Yeah, sorry, um, no. yeah so, so just this morning, right, I was dropping our kid off to the uh, to the nursery. I walked by a church and I saw a poster, right? And the poster said, fake news or good news? And I presume by good news, they're referring to the the, the good news of the gospel, I guess, right? Mm-hmm. Would that count as a, as, as a narrow cast example of propaganda, do you think? It's probably a... Uh, more of broadcast. I mean, in the sense that if it's a poster on a church notice board, it's going out to whoever's walking past. There's not really any uh, any targeting of it. I mean, I think the the concept of narrow casting tends to have developed more as uh, as communications technology has advanced in the sense of using, if you go into social media, using algorithms to right. target people who have already. Um, been identified as as potential subjects on account of the data points that have already been gathered against them. It's interesting you talk about first of all Goebbels and and others, and and then you're talking about the church as well. You didn't describe whether it was a Catholic church or a Protestant church, but anyway, it, 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 they all kind of <laughs> um, engage in 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 similar um, uh, strategies. The interesting thing about propaganda is whenever you mention propaganda, you get this kind of Joseph Goebbels shade or shadow that uh, appears here. Yeah, so repeat a lie. What is, what is the, it's attributed to him, is it? A, repeat a lie often enough, it becomes the truth. Something to that effect, yeah? Yeah, or, or as uh, as newsreaders or, or, or politicians of various kinds say when they're trying to engage with journalists, they say, you know, throw enough mud at the wall and some of it will stick. Um, so 
most people are quite scared of propaganda off the basis of what we saw as well documented through major crimes against humanity. For example, the Holocaust, the hate radio from the Rwandan genocide, etc. But what must be remembered is that propaganda is all around us in, in every society in the world. And it's also about truth telling. It, it can be about truth telling. So governments are engaged in propaganda all the time. Corporations are engaged in propaganda all the time. We now, as broadcasters through social media channels, are propagandists. Some of what we say is accurate. Some of what we say is not accurate. Um, the Perhaps the, the scary part of propaganda, there's two parts here. First thing is the experience of Germany in the 1930s, the way in which Germany, which was seen as a, a cultural beacon and also a, a highly educated society, um, was able to, to move to that point where um, certain things were seen as acceptable that clearly in the cold light of day are sort of flabbergasting now. And so there's that sense of unease. Uh, it's seen as a dark art. So we have these moments in history and propaganda generally becomes an accusation that you that a politician labels at another politician or somebody labels at you saying you are you are you are engaged in propaganda. And actually by by stating that you are engaged in propaganda publicly, they are therefore engaged in propaganda themselves. So it, it, it is propaganda has a lot of baggage. That said, we in propaganda studies like to think of things as being white propaganda, grey pro propaganda and black propaganda. The, the obvious kind of movement from light to dark being hopefully quite evident in terms of I don't need to explain that. Um, I would argue that you can never really have white propaganda because even if you select information that is entirely truthful, you are upfront about what it is that your intention is. First of all, not many people engaged in propaganda do that because once the intention of the source is revealed, its potency reduces. But also any truth that the propagandist reveals is a selective truth. It's a truth that serves their own ends in some form or another. And therefore, the selectivity of the message um, results in everything, in my view, being either grey or black. You mentioned religiosity, you mentioned the church. The origins, the etymology of the word propaganda emerges out of the Reformation, particularly the Catholic Church, Rome, or the, the, the Vatican, establishing a, a propaganda collegiate, let's call it, in order to try and overcome some of the challenges that have been presented by the emergence of Lutherans and, 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 and other forms of Protestants. That, that is interesting to me because that was the because it did beg an obvious question there to me. And is it in some sense is can propaganda be, you know, made to serve the better angels of our nature? Is it, you know, is there is there instances in which propaganda can be used for noble purposes? I don't know. I don't know. Say the foundation of the NHS or something like that. You seem to say that that's not entirely possible. I, and I suppose the, the the political communicators of our world today, you know, the the Alistair Campbells and the James Carvels, would say that that being skilled at informing yeah. the public about government policy is a valuable thing. Yeah, I mean, there's there's a few things there. The first thing is, as 
you're a philosopher. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to tell you this, but you know, the concept of what is good is a is a contested idea, whether it's Kant's metaphysics of morals or whatever else. Um, you know, so so what what is good, and you know, some of my work looks at the concepts of charity, so concepts of good, inverted commas, good good cause. So what is good is is open to interpretation, open to moral interpretation. But yes, there is also a more pra- practical aspect to this, where, where propaganda certainly has been used for inverted commas good in in various contexts. I think that if you look at, for example, UN peacekeeping operations, the UN, which in its actually in its founding mandate says that it will never use propaganda. What it kind of means by that is is it's not going to use deception. Not, not not use propaganda, but essentially um, in these peacekeeping scenarios, you have a very heated communications environment, particularly lots of deception, lots of deceit flying around in different places. And one of the first things that the, a UN peacekeeping operation will do is found a, a radio service in that in that territory, which will be information radio, which is essentially just pr- providing accurate information on what is happening if the conflict is still kind of bubbling away in places, but also saying this is where safe havens are, this is um, where where one can find food supplies, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it's a place where um, civilians can can move towards and to and reclaim some degree of agency. Within a, within a scenario where there's not much agency at all, most people would say that's probably quite a good thing that's um, that's going on there. Again, though, the UN in its peacekeeping operations, you can argue, is probably not really serving itself. It is in some respects because it's it's self interested in uh, in achieving in in achieving the goals that it sets out. But those goals are probably quite noble goals in terms of bringing about conflict resolution how and, and bringing about conflict re- resolution is a very mucky business um so so there's one example of it and there's you know as i say there's, there's plenty of others you talk about healthcare provision and things like that sure you know you can make a decent case for that as well let's sort of uh, build on that then because on one sense i suppose it's 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 a you, you mentioned it as a very sort of emotive phenomenon in, 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 in that is designed to appeal to our emotions to get our emotions working rather than uh, our rational and logical faculties uh, so in some sense in propaganda operates or i suppose more nefarious versions of propaganda operates or perhaps positive op- versions of propaganda mm. uh, as a type of a psychological phenomenon and that you know the ways uh, propaganda works is that it's it tends to be constantly repeated as Goebbels said and when it's constantly repeated you know it becomes harder and harder to sort of disentangle it or critique it or stand against it the psychological element is interesting to me i'm kind of interested though in the type of social effect so do these say types of nefarious propaganda or deceptive propaganda do they have a political goal or are they just are they designed to create a specific type of atmosphere that's what i'm asking really colin i think and if it's so what type of atmosphere is it uh, i think that's really dependent on what the motive of the source is i mean in, in its most extreme circumstances, take, for example, the Rwandan genocide and the, and the um, hate radio that was that, that emerged from Kigali during during the conflict. There's a clear 
purpose here where it is encouraging particularly young unemployed Hutu men to pick up their pangas, their um, sort of sugarcane cutting swords that, that, that they have and quote, go to work because this is, so there's an association with social value, there's an association with the emphasis on you being unemployed and the reason why you're unemployed is because of these horrible Tutsis and go to work, i.e. go and kill Tutsis in the vicinity of where you are. So I guess the, the, the point here is just around what, what does the source want? There are some some sources, and I, you know, perhaps to use the you probably heard this phrase before, but you know, some people just want to see the world burn. You know, the, so there are some people who certainly engage in stuff just for destructive purposes. But the vast majority of propaganda that we see today is ideologically underpinned by neoliberalism in some form or another whether that's politically, socially, economically, environmentally, etc. So, you know, if you're going to talk about, I've just mentioned the environment there, um, much of the propaganda around how to be a good ecological citizen involves what Arne Nace would call shallow ecology. It's not actually going to fundamentally change anything. I mean, doing a little bit of recycling here and there, it isn't really doing much. Essentially, to move back to more religious terminology, much of the much of what is done at a shallow ecological level is essentially paying penance for destructive actions that you've done elsewhere. So, for example, like carbon offsetting or something like that, where you can go, well, just don't get on the bloody plane in the first place, and um, and then <laughs> you, know, you you don't have to offset your carbon emissions. So, so it's that kind of um, encouragement that is made, and that particularly that framing of the perimeter of the debate as being having commerce and the market as as the primary motive even these things like you know the green the, this, the emergence and the, the substantial growth of the green industries these industries aren't actually going to solve anything because well quite frankly we're in an environmental crisis because we've made too much stuff so we're not going to get out of an environmental crisis by making more stuff you know, we have to kind of move away from that and, and move away from our our quest for for the resources of, of, of the earth. That's 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 interesting. I um I suppose sort of building on that, and I think that's a good example, that's a useful example, you know. Uh, I I I'm I'm familiar with Ernie Nace. He kind of got has this distinction between what he calls deep ecology and uh, shallow ecology. What he's actually asking for, I think, is something deeper. He's asking for a well, a transformation of ourselves in society, ultimately. Yeah, well, he's, he's sure. So he, he's asking, if we're moving into sort of more uh, psychological te- te- territory here, he's asking for us to move from egocentric behaviour to ecocentric behaviour, which philosophical and psychological literature. You see, uh, for example, Schopenhauer talks about um, all human motive or all human activities being underpinned by ego, compassion or malice. Um Somebody like Eric Fromm would add love to that equation as well and say that love is not, because I think for Schopenhauer, love was just this kind of attachment to to, to, to ego. Um, but then he was a kind of middle-aged man living alone. So that probably tells you a little bit about 
what, yeah. why he, he he was skeptical about love. Yeah, he was a real friend. charmer. He was a real charmer. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, uh, and yeah, and his uh, his worldview is uh, is not exactly all that positive, I would say. But certainly, as we say, you know, we're moving into a territory here where the extent to which we are dominated by our egos in one form or another is and actually the ego tricks us into believing that we are more compassionate than what than what we are so um moving into perhaps the discussion about charity the vast majority i would say well um Carnegie would estimate that about um, 95% of all charitable endeavours are essentially egotistical in nature, and the remaining 5% are, are motivated by compassion. Quite often, people convince themselves that they are engaging compassionately, but actually, if you you don't even have to delve that deep psychologically into into the profile to realise that um, it, it's actually a, a camouflage for, for for ego, and indeed. We see various people engaging with charity for malicious purposes as well, either for to sustain the levels of social injustice that, that prevail or indeed increase them, or perhaps even more kind of devious ways, for example, Jimmy Savile, people like that, who, who are essentially using charity as a vehicle towards the exploitation of children. So that's well, that's an interesting way to seg to, the, to, the, to a discussion of uh, propaganda and charity, then I think. Um, I suppose with, 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 with what you're saying there, well, the philosopher in me finds it interesting because, and I think this is what you're saying, right, in terms of trying to bring about, depending on your objective as a propagandist, whether that's Savile who wants to abuse children or whether that's the NHS who wants to do it, set up the NHS and have noble healthcare purposes, the UN or Arnie Nace who wants, wants to move from a, a, an egocentric to an ecocentric form of environment. It's about, in substance, bringing about, I guess, a change of culture in some in some way. And that's the, that fascinates me as a philosopher because what's at the heart of propaganda then is that there's an illusion of truth in some sense. That's that's what they're presenting. That's, and it's that, you know, it's a simulacrum of the truth rather than something that has to be tested to be verified to have to do the, do, 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 do the work. Now, yeah, yeah, so you want to come in there, Colin, go ahead. Well, I was going to say that that most well, I don't know if most propagandists have thought that hard about this, but I think in propaganda studies, the truth is a it is a fluid concept. Now, um, all manner of propagandists and propaganda theorists have discussed the notion of many truths within a, a and and clearly the the several truths being available at any at any one time. Um, depending on 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 whose interest is is involved, and particularly the notion of charity, you can see, take you can take the debate back to the 1830s, 1840s, 1850s, where within popular culture and within you know um, public acad- academia, let's call it for 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 use of a better uh, word, there is a substantial debate about the merits of charity. You know, we're we're sort of 60, 70 years after the uh, after the industrial industrial revolution you have mass urbanization you've got squalor destitution in, in inner cities in in the uk and and out of that environment comes charity and or, or certainly increases in the volume of charity particular types of charity as well can like benevolent funds and these sorts of things so you've got thomas carlyle you've got 
Dickens, particularly Charles Dickens, wading into this debate. You've got over the other side of the Atlantic, you've got um, Thoreau and, and Waldo Emerson coming in on it. You've got uh, Engels talking about it in um, uh, the state of the working class in England, his book in, from the 1930s, uh, sorry, the 1830s. So you have this substantial debate and it's quite clear that there is no actual truth in this environment. This is a, a public debate that's occurring. Fast forward to the 1960s, oh, really into the post-war environment, I would say, and we see this movement towards charity being an unquestionable good within our society, particularly with the emergence of neoliberalism in the 1970s, um, where over the last sort of 40, 50 years, charity has become this pillar of society, unquestionable pillar of society, which is to, to, to the point that, you know, if you go down the pub on a Friday night and you start talking to your mates and saying, well, charity is not, might, some charity is good, some isn't good, they look at you like you've got four heads. So <laughs> you, you do see this movement in what, what as I say, the, the fluidity of truth. Now, my concern, and, and perhaps pegged onto that, is that people like me who look at charity, look at the propaganda that emanates from charitable organisations and the way in which people think of charity as a sort of more sort of sociological project. I, I can't tell you the number of times I've been sort of convicted of misanthropy, essentially, of of, of being accused of, well, I at a conference in 20... That's an interesting choice of words, Colin, because it's the opposite of philanthropy, isn't it? Oh, exactly. That's the point, yes. Yeah. Um, so I think I was at a conference, I was at a development studies conference in... 2017 and a guy got up in the audience and shouted at me saying that I was taking food out of a poor Bangladeshi's mouth for what you I was swine saying. you swine Colin I know well that's the and I, and I thought to myself god I really am a dick haven't I um, <laughs> but the point is that I think the wider point here is that for for a lot of people and these are obviously this is an academic conference this guy was an economist um but for for, for many people they they are now largely blinded to any debate around the concept of charity at all. Um, it is now an unquestionable, in the minds of most people, an unquestionable social good, no matter what it's doing. And I would estimate that a significant percentage of it, certainly more than half of what is going on in charity, actually serves to sustain the injustices that we, that we have in this society. And so much of it is motivated by ego and indeed the way from a media communications scholar side of things the way in which charities themselves in their in their own propaganda particularly their advertising and their attempt to get money from people the way in which they proposition people is uh essentially an, an egotistical endeavor it essentially attempts to empower the donor and through pity for the recipients or the potential recipients. And, and that creates a, a, a very difficult scenario because donors who are giving for, for egotistical purposes tend to expect gratitude for what they are doing. And if, gra and if the appropriate gratitude is not received, then there's a danger that they won't give again. Um, they also egotistical donors tend to give to causes that are self-serving 
in some form or another, um, rather than being something that is evaluated on the basis of social good. So there's a, but and, and the charities themselves encourage that. They encourage the 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 recycling of that. Well, you're the reason that you make people irate with that, Colin, is because you're challenging their their way of being. You're challenging their very essence as such. You yeah, know that the, yeah. that in some sense they are part of the problem rather than the solution. Or that's that's the claim you're hypothesising at the very least. Sure. Like, you know, and that's that's a hard pill for people to swallow. Well, I, I'm not saying that they're part of. Well, I am saying they're part of the problem. But what I am what I am trying to do is say to them, you need to become more critically minded as to what you are doing. You need to become more literate into what you are doing, both in terms of how you engage and what you do when you do engage. I'm not saying don't engage at all. I'm saying that there are there are better ways in which you can engage. But crucially, it's about becoming more self-aware and becoming more mindful of self as to what uh, their own psychology is. And this is the problem, again, we go back to ego, is that if somebody, if you start saying to somebody, I mean, the, the, the ego, I'm quite interested in like, the stories that people tell themselves about themselves. Oh yeah, absolutely fascinating. Yeah, and, <laughs> most interesting and, things. You yeah. know, and essentially, most people see themselves as virtuous characters, and to the most extent, we are virtuous characters. Most, you know, even like sort of serial killers and you know, paedophiles. You know, they've, they've probably got some redeeming quality somewhere in in them. But the way in which we we, we profile people in society is through kind of like mugshotting them sort of thing. So we, we put them into good and evil brackets, even though Nietzsche thought we would get over that 100 years ago, we're still doing it now. Um, so we kind, of, we, we kind of basket people. And the reality is that to be a, a full human, you are good and bad. And, you know, sometimes you're, sometimes you're a, a decent guy and other times you're a right nasty bastard. And that's, and that's what we all are. Um, but of course, the ego attempts to uh, lead us to a, a, a fertile ground where we are seen as wholly virtuous, and the various defence mechanisms that Freud talks about, etc., are about pushing away those kind of more uncomfortable aspects where we think that actually we are full humans, and we've done all of us have done things that we're not particularly proud of in the past. Well, it's a good Nietzschean point that as well. Yeah, sort of the, it's kind of a warts and all view of the human, sort of a tragic view of the human, you know, that we have to kind of accept our flaws. Now, I, I want to make a segue on that just to talk about this particular case study that you look at, and that's Andrew Carnegie. I think I've mm. said that right. The American uh, steel magnate and uh, philanthropist. And uh, it's very topical, this as well, because we have, we have these figures in political discourse at the moment you have your bill gates you have your george soros who are rich capitalists save the world just out of mm-hmm. I mean, their, their super superpower is you know just yeah. having way more money than everybody else the carnegie in your in your blog post uh, as extended blog post it's not just a blog post but um i'll put a, i'll put a link to it in the in the show notes what interested me about that piece colin was that it's the element of self-mythologizing that mm-hmm. carnegie was uh, engaged in on a very basic level, philanthropy, who's going to say philanthropy has got, you know, Bill Gates will come up with loads of vaccines, more power to his elbow or whatever. But the sort of the deeper point is, you know, it's not so much that they're propagandizing that, but they're propagandizing a version of themselves, which they might possibly believe. So now the uh, the Carnegie example that you use, I'm going to quote from your, your, your blog post here as well. What really, really struck me about that was he says, so I think your argument, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, is that sort of Carnegie was this he kind of propagated this myth of himself as 
a, a sort of a rags to riches type, you know, self-made man, you know, when I was poor, you know, uh, you know, I wasn't like these other sort of idiot poor people who are lazy and idle and feckless and all the rest of it. And, uh, and he, the, the quote he said, right, uh, I, I can't recall quite sort of the name. You, you can fill me in on this. I can't recall the sort of text it comes from. It's from his kind of a master plan document, I guess. So he says, That's the one. That's the one. Uh, it is because I know how sweet and happy and pure the home of honest poverty is, how free from perplexing care, from social envies and emulations, how loving and how united its members may be in the common interest of supporting the family. Well, isn't that just peachy? Isn't that just peachy? That's a lovely little idyllic view of what it means to be, what it's like to be poor. Forgive me for saying it, but it's complete fucking bollocks. I mean, <laughs> that's the, the long and the short of that. The, the interesting thing about Carnegie is that and I, I, re I refer to this elsewhere in the blog. He continually refers to himself as a great man. And I'm not going to sit there and, and, and w try to work out when he decided that he was a great man. But what you often see with you know, the sort of modern day billionaire philanthropists is that there, there comes a watershed in these people's lives where their, their greatness their, their, their self-perception of greatness moves them into a particular territory, both within themselves, but also within an attempt to manufacture the public consciousness around them. And I, I would refer to somebody like Reinhold Niebuhr, the, the ethicist from, from, from the 30s, and he talks about moral man, immoral society. I think that one of the, the I'm, I'm going to misquote it, but what he roughly says is that these people have more money than can ever be justified and they know that they have more money than can ever be justified and and that makes them quite uncomfortable and so they then move into this territory of giving it away but at the same time of giving it away they also move into mass tax avoidance as well so what they're doing here is saying well i'm a great man normally a man not always but usually a man i'm a great man and so i have moved above the realm of income tax, and I am now going to decide how I disperse of this money for myself. I'm not going to give it to this government or that government. That's for that, that that's what the plebs do, essentially. So it's really interesting that, you know, if if you're just a sort of an everyday worker, you're 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 25, 30%, 40% tax on your income. And at that very moment when you've made it, you then engage in a policy which ensures that you pay like 1% tax sort of thing. And then you start giving it away. That is a grossly narcissistic moment in your life. So from a, a propaganda point of view, then it's your point is fairly straightforward. I think you're kind of saying that these sort of magnates, these billionaires, they're using charity as a form of propaganda to obscure more unpalatable or disreputable, even perhaps uh, elements of their own uh, business, their own persona. Well, in some cases, I think that you see, for example, Bill Gates uh, establishes the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation around the the same time that he is under quite a lot of scrutiny around his, particularly his his uh, monopolization of markets um, and some of his own personal conduct in in in, in running Microsoft and and some other enterprises. So it's a kind of it's a response to what's happening, but also I think that it's there's an element here of 
of simple demigodness coming out where they think, well, you know, you are now all my children and I'm going to provide for you. And and so I think that the the, the, the propaganda element, I think, you know, go back to go back to Nibor here and say, look, fundamentally, there, there comes an awareness where they know that they cannot justify having all this money and therefore they have to create a propaganda in order to justify both the the retaining of status and in some form or another the 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 finance as well and it doesn't really matter if you know bill gates gives away in the carnegie framework 90% of his fortune you know he'll still have billions left so what one must look at and this is another element of of charitability particularly around charity propaganda is that the the great uh, what well, what what the mainstream media tends to latch on to is these huge donations that are made by philanthropists. So, um, you know, Jeff Bezos in the middle of the pandemic, uh, at the start of this year or early last year, gave something like $500 million to to an array of charities. And you sit and go, yeah, but $500 million to you, Jeff Bezos, isn't very much. It's a Tuesday, effectively. It's just, yeah, it's, yeah, you know, it's I think he's got, if not over $100 billion, then, you know, He's still, so he's, you've actually given away 0.5% of your worth, let's say. Whereas if you look at somebody who earns, say, uh, I don't know, a salary of like £2,000 a month, but actually gives away, say, £200 to charity a month, you know, they're, they're giving away 10%, then given their closeness to the breadline, etc., that's a phenomenally more important and a phenomenally more generous thing to do. But of course, it doesn't get the the traction and therefore the 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 billionaire philanthropists kind of use their understanding of media structures media ownership media agenda in order to um to to gain that traction and and to promote themselves in the way that they that they intend uh, yeah I, I understand that this is a sort of a developing project for you as well uh, something you're you're looking at uh, you know for, in terms of future research, it's it's it's, it's very interesting because it's not something that we associate. We don't associate propaganda with charity. That's my basic point. We associate charity with something automatically benevolent and mm. something good and something kind. You know, yeah. Unless you're Nietzsche and it's just a, it's a it's a form of self narcissistic reappropriation. Basically, mm. you know, you know, you give you give ten pounds to a beggar, you feel bloody brilliant after it. I look how good you are and all the rest of it. Yeah. I suppose one of the one of the other just to follow follow up on that one of the other questions that's interesting is well, one of the things that struck me about in terms of charity propaganda so charity you know it, it's not something that we strike as strike charity is something that strikes us as something inherently propagandist or amenable amenable to using the dark arts of uh, manipulation but one of the things that struck me about Carnegie's rhetoric was it was just it's just a you know basic reiteration of the, the myth of the deserving and the undeserving poor. You see this everywhere. You know, it's a very Victorian idea, very sort of patronizing idea. You know, I mean, in that sense of the, the Victorian patronizing. Yeah, you know, and, um, you know, you see this replicated all across society. But not just with billionaires. You probably see it in, uh, you probably see it replicated in debates around immigration as well. You know, you see, think of like the, uh, you know, the, the distinction between the skilled and unskilled immigrant, where you have to have a point system or something like that. Yeah, I mean, you see this uh, from a, from a, from a charity point of view, you see it probably most prominently in discussions of foreign aid and development assistance, which is framed as 
state charity in in some form or another. It's it's. Um, I mean, if you look at the the labelling of UK aid, it says um, uh, it's it's got a sort of British flag on it, and it says from the British people um, beneath it. So it's it's framed as a form of charity, although. Over the last 10 years under the Tories, you've seen more more of a change in, in literature to sort of win-win or mutual benefit kind of thing, which at the very least is actually more genuine than some of the, the more sort of liberalist um, approaches to foreign aid. Foreign aid is essentially um, emerges out of the post-World War II environment and particularly in the decolonialisation Movement. It's essentially a, a method of maintaining a form of control over what became notionally in independent states. Um, it is highly selective as to what, uh, 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 in terms of the sorts of things that it does and when it does and where it does it and why it does it. Um, and ultimately, it's about the consolidation of power rather than the rather than moving um, particular parts of the world into uh, to becoming more sustainable or, or more um, um, self-reliant. Yeah, I'm wondering, could one draw a distinction between sort of soft propaganda and hard propaganda? And I think you kind of did this at the outset anyway, but, you know, in a similar way that you might have, a, you know, soft power and hard power. So hard power being, I don't know, military intervention, soft power being, I know, cultural influence, you know, uh, lots more, you know, lots more Coca-Cola and Friends episodes or something like that uh, throughout the world. As Nancy Snow says, um, we hate you, but set, but send us your Baywatch. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And this is leading up to a question in terms of sort of soft propaganda, if that's a, 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 a valuable distinction at all. But do you think, you know, you're probably around the same age as, as I am, and uh, you're probably remember, old enough to remember the 1980s. Is that right, Colin? Just checking. I can I can re- I can recall some things in the 1980s. I can recall the Berlin Wall, things like that, yes. <laughs> okay, yeah. Can you remember Live Aid? I I'm I'm too young to remember it, but I can uh, I have studied Live Aid quite quite a lot because it's actually quite an interesting watershed moment in in the history of charity. Which was exactly my question: Why is Live Aid such a watershed moment in the history of charity? Okay, well there we go. That's a good uh, good spontaneous question for you there. Okay, so li- Live Aid is interesting on. I, I can't even. I can't quite work out how many levels it's interesting, but it's very, very interesting. Um, okay, so Live Aid essentially involves raising money for uh, famine that's happening in in Ethiopia, and the famine is mainly happening to Christians in Ethiopia as well, which is actually a very important distinction here because one of the because plenty of famines have happened since and after, but particularly because this was happening in the region of Ethiopia, which is predominantly Christian. There seems to be an elevated interest in it from particularly Western communities. What we have with Live Aid, well, let's go back to Band-Aid for, and do, do they know it's Christmas um, at all? Highly patronising lyrics, inaccurate, factually inaccurate lyrics. But the emphasis around do they know it's Christmas time at all, emphasising that, that these are actually Christians that, that we're helping. The music video that Geldof and Madur commissioned is there ha- there's no images of non-white people in it at all um, it's just Bono and Sting looking pretty disinterested if I'm honest in, uh, in, in a music studio in December but that's not really the, the main 
the main factor behind this. The first thing is that the BBC, because it's Michael Burke's report from, uh, I think it's a place called Corum in, in, in Ethiopia, but don't, don't quote me on that, misrepresents why famines occur. So famines are political events. There is no such thing as a naturally occurring famine as, as yet, perhaps with you know the continuation of population growth that may well be, but all famines in the history of, of, of the world, as far as I could work out, are political events in some form or another. Um, but it, what we get is the rains have failed kind of narrative that, that, that's going on. And we see, this is one of the first times that we see the images of the, the starving children, the, the um, children with the flies on their faces, dead, dead animals, etc. The, the, and, and an interesting sideline on that is around the, the compassion fatigue that we now have around seeing images like that in that charities in their propaganda now have to kind of go further and further and further in order to invoke the same reaction in us. We're quite used to seeing those images. But the most important part of this, uh, of, of Live Aid and Band Aid, is that it is a transaction. It's a transaction between us in the West or those who are either buying the single or attending Live Aid, the concerts in the summer of 1985. The transaction is, I will give money if you entertain me enough. And this model, particularly through things like Children in Need, through comic relief, etc. Comic relief is essentially let's have a laugh while giving to charity and trying to leave poverty. It's, it's kind of it's like kind of no, no laughing matter sort of thing. So there is this transaction that emerges, and it leads itself down a dangerous precedent where it says, well, if you, because the next time you do it, the person that the, the the donor expects more entertainment and more entertainment and you you move into a really dangerous place where you have quite extremes of behaviour occurring. And you see this filter then into society, the emergence of people running marathons for charity, people doing skydives for charity, people shaving their hair off for charity. All these sorts of things are essentially transactional notions that if you don't do this, then you don't get the money. So making so essentially what you're then doing is making charity vulnerable to this. And it's all egotistical um, because the, the narrative that you see band-aid, the, the narrative that you see subsequently in Children Need Comic Relief is all about, you know, please, 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 please give us your money. You have the power to change lives. It's, it's deeply egotistical messaging. And it's also people sitting back and saying, OK, entertain me, entertain me. And if I'm entertained enough, I'll give you my 20 quid. And that's a really weird way of looking at ch of charity. And actually, uh, if we're going to talk about definitions of things, that is not altruism. That is pretty far from the definition of altruism. Um, so charity and altruism over the last 30 to 40 years have kind of really moved away from each other in terms of what it is, but they're still seen as being uh, two sides of the same coin. The additional thing that we see with Band-Aid and Live Aid is the creation of the charity single, which has been replicated God knows how many times now for all manner of causes, you know, like Grenfell Tower had a charity single, etc. Again, it's transactional. And you see the emergence of the celebrity and the celebrity endorsement of, of charity campaigns. Essentially, if, you're, if your favourite celebrity endorses the charity, then you'll do it. But that's dangerous as well, because 
first of all, you can have scenarios where the celebrity falls from grace quite spectacularly. Look at, for example, the, the Livestrong Foundation that Lance Armstrong founded, which essentially collapsed after he was found to be a sort of serial doping violator in, in the cycling industry or you know, stuff that Jimmy Savile's done, you know, that, 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 that was seen to be that. But also, again, you know, it's it's um, the the media coverage of charity, of people in need, actually stops being about the people in need. So for the most part, the media come along to events because there's, the celeb is there, rather than, and, and they spend most of their time following the celeb around. You see this perhaps most iconically with Angelina Jolie, where if you look at the coverage of her going to take it, for example, when she goes to Darfur um, in Sudan around the, the, the crisis there about a decade ago, you get these really close up images of, of Angelina Jolie and focusing it almost on, on her lips and the sort of, you know, it's that kind of real beauty image that goes on there. You don't hear anything about the issues that are going on. You don't hear anything about the, the destitution. You don't hear anything fundamentally about why this is happening as well. So, you know, Band-Aid, uh, Live Aid, etc. Uh, is, is an enormous watershed moment in, 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 in the history of my research, essentially. Yeah, so it's a massive shift in how we, how uh, our perception of charity is managed, how it's changed, how it becomes transactional, and how it becomes injected with causa celebre. Yes, and, and, and also I think there's something in and this is speculative, it's not, you know, I haven't spoken to Bob Geldof before, so I don't know, right? But there's something particular in Geldof's persona which reflects the, the method through which he engages. And, I, I, well, you see this quite a lot. So people use charity to fill voids in their lives in some form, emotional voids, psychological voids in their lives. And I think that, you know, Geldof seems to be quite a, a, a troubled guy in, 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 in different forms. And I'm not, not going you know, to like, get like, into some sort of like you know, slandering him or anything like that. That's not the point. But you see well, this. He's, he's, had a, he's had some, some personal tragedy, I think, as a day over the years. Yeah. He's had some personal tragedy. But I, I, but I think that he's, he's, a, he's a complex guy. It seems to me, I mean, I, I'm, I'm making a wider point here, actually. I'm not really talking about Bob Geldof, but I think you see it quite clearly with Geldof, is that people who set up charities, people who found charities, people who make charity the centrepiece of their lives are often, it's, it can be underpinned by a trauma of some kind or another. So I'm not just talking about people who sort of set up foundations if their if their kid dies or something like that i mean these foundations tend to run they get donate they get a lump sum of donation and then they tend to fold after a few years um that that's not really the point but you know you see various people who go out of their ways to to help in society or, or, or what they perceive as being helping in society um but actually because they haven't quite thought it through in some form or another. It, it's not always actually all that helpful. And I think that what Live Aid Band-Aid did, it hasn't actually changed anything. In many ways, we come back to the original question here of the perpetuation of social injustice and exploitation in that what Geldof and Madure asked the people to, he, he spoke to people and said, you Give are- Give us your money. He said, well, give us your fucking money, he said, actually. Right, in the interview. Idea, yeah. um, but, the, 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 but the point is that he was saying, 
you're the solution to the problem. Now, we were not the solution to the problem. We were actually part of the cause of the problem. And we see this across lots of fields, but right now we see it particularly in terms of the ecological crisis. Like the reason why the Amazon is getting deforested is not because of Brazilian people, it's because of us. Because those resources that come out of the Amazon, whether it's the trees themselves, whether it's the the, the minerals, the natural resources beneath the surface, or whether it's turning land over for palm oil plantations or for cattle grazing, all of that is for mainly for Western audience, uh, for, 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 for Western purposes. Similar to the, the drug industry, the reason the reason cocaine continues to be trafficked is because there's a huge right. demand for consumption. And, and the poppy industry from Afghanistan and all these sorts of things. I mean, okay, Afghanistan has quite a lot of heroin addicts, ironically, since since the Americans got there in, two, in 2001. But, um, but, the, but the point is that this is all about us, really. And actually, if you go back to Ethiopia, you have various Western governments engaged with the parties of this conflict and funding instability within the civil war in that country. So the question, you know, move this to the modern day here. You know, you have the UK government sending aid to Yemen, but then you also have British uh, or BAE systems essentially propping up the Saudi military and enabling them in a significant capacity to cause death and destruction in the first place and to and to wipe out Yemen's resources. So there is uh, a conflict of interest there where wherein on, on our television screens we see appeals for aid for Yemen, whilst we also collectively elect a government which is supportive of the Saudis and also we consider BAE systems to be one of the top 10 employers or best employers to work for in in these surveys that you see every year. BAE systems is always in the top sort of 10, top 20. And in many ways, the the company itself seduces its employees to work for it by giving it all these benefits. Like, you know, you get breakfast and you come to work and you get a gym and all these sorts of things, <laughs> you know, and they get pensions and all, and, you know, high salaries and all these sorts of things. So, so I think that the, there's a, um, the point I'm making here is going back to propaganda terms is that the propaganda leads us down a particular Avenue. It displays the situation as X, Y, Z, but actually, the reality of the situation exists somewhere else that is um, certainly more questionable over how it it's, should be understood. This is very interesting to me. This is very interesting to me. If you think of someone like Geldof, well, Geldof is a, you know, he's a, he comes out of the punk tradition of music. Yeah. You know, sort of softer type of punk than I'd be into now, like, you know, but it is punk nonetheless, like, you know. Um, but it's it's like, it, it, the punk movement is... is defined by anti-authoritarianism you know and that 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 notion i think it's, it's interesting because in some sense attached to sort of Gildoff's rhetoric is the idea that and i remember him talking about this you know that governments aren't going to fix this you know governments aren't going to fix this so it's kind of like an anti-propaganda propaganda if you get me like you know the government is not going to help you it's you the individual the individual consumer who makes a transaction who could save the world right yeah. Yeah. So okay. I suppose I suppose my, my my broader question is: Has that live aid, that, that 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 sort of grand spectacle of charity, has it undermined, in some sense, along with many other things, 
the public's belief in legitimacy of governments of the state to be valid actors in in right. in, in, okay. in so this is something that we problems see. Yeah, yeah, go ahead. there's about four things here first thing is yes um we see again in the neoliberal age contested areas of authority i think that governments become the, the the concept of governmental transparency is essentially a propaganda in itself where you know you can go on the number 10 website and give feedback yeah put it to freedom of information request nobody's know. fucking reading it okay so you know so so you know freedom of information request only sort of thing actually that that is uh, a misnomer parliament and you get all these parliamentary outreach officers going into schools and all that telling you about the, the good work that parliament does parliament is moving further and further away into that void comes celebrities and various other people of of, of that ilk who are, in Plato's terms, the kind of guardians of this new society. But I think it's interesting. But you know, go, go back to to to, to Geldof here. He's right in that government's not going to do anything. But and and I think there's a few things there. The first thing is, but he still fundamentally misrepresented what the problem was. Now, that might be that he he just didn't understand it, because I think, well, from, at least from what he said, he saw the reports from Ethiopia and he was engaged in an emotional reaction to it. Yeah, I remember that, Jim. You did say yeah, that, Jim. So, so, you know, it was the, the sight of these people dying that, that and, and, and to some extent, he kind of quite quickly cobbled things together. So I don't quite think he was thinking rationally about it. The wider point, though, is that the government is going to do something about it if you engage properly in this process. So at the same time, you see the anti-apartheid movement where you've got people like Desmond Tutu going around the world saying, don't buy South African products. You know, I remember being a, 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 a little boy and my mum went to see Desmond Tutu. Um, he was talking in. At, we were living in Yorkshire at the time when I was when I was a kid. And he came to came to, the, uh, the, I think he came to Leeds. I can't quite remember where it was. And he and he said, you know, don't buy South African goods. This will put pressure on the government. And it does put pressure on the government. And what you there there then see is the National Party in South Africa having to make reforms through. And you're right, Thatcher wasn't going to do anything about it. The wider point here, I think. You know, from a philosophical point of view, we can go to the work of somebody like John Stuart Mill, and fundamentally, oh, yeah, he says yeah. that that you know, governments are have certainly have within them the capacity to be tyrannical, and therefore you can't you have to have civic organisations, you have to have um, areas of of public sphere, I guess, to use Habermas's concept, um, where government is excluded from it. And that these things are good for society. You know, society helps one another, etc. This is all positive. And but ultimately you can't then engage in these ways because government because you've decided that government cannot be changed. Because once you decide that government cannot be changed, you're never going to change the government. And actually, we do have the power to change government. And my kind of research says, you know, even if it's just talking to students or whatever, say, look, if you move to a position where you understand these issues better, where you can understand yourself better, have greater mindfulness, have greater 
commitment to your own mindfulness and your own self-development, then you will engage with government in a way that will emerge to, to change things. And I think that the example from something like, as I say, um, apartheid South Africa shows you that, yes, it can it can be done, but it has to be done in a certain way. And I think that you know, equally, if you look at somebody like Gandhi as well, Gandhi's got his flaws, let's be honest, but but a lot of his messaging was, was, was quite similar in this front, is that you've got to kind of hit them where it hurts. And most propaganda, whether it's colonial propaganda in, in Gandhi's era, um, is essentially involved in a in an attempt to maintain the status quo in some form or another, whatever that status quo may be. Mm. So most of most propaganda emanates from the powerful or from advocates of the powerful. And whether it's you know Gramsci talking about the guardians or whether it's Plato talking about the guardians of society, often you see these people as kind of these go-betweens between the elites and and the and the public. But ultimately most of them are in particularly when it comes to the heads of charity, particularly when it comes to celebrity endorsement of charity, most pe- most of these people wittingly or unwittingly are stooges or are stooges of the elite. Yeah, I think uh, you see that you see that distinction in numerous elements of political philosophy. You mentioned it yeah. later. I think particularly you see it in Hegel. I mean, Hegel's yeah. interesting because he says, and it gives us a very important message as well. He says that, you know, government is never one thing. Government is, uh, well, he, he, Hegel and the philosophy of right made a distinction between, and I think you've alluded to it as well, a distinction between the executive, those who rule, and uh, those who administrate the government. So the functionaries of uh, of government, and those are things that we need to think about uh, when we're uh, trying to understand what government is and its reach and its range. But Hegel's idea is ultimately dead interesting because he says, what's the, main, what's the main task of government? The main task of government is to reproduce itself. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's the point is that you can you can perhaps overcomplicate that that understanding if you start thinking, if you start separating things out. (laughs) Exactly. And you start kind of saying, um, I've called it in my own writing, the fictional demarcation of government portfolios. You know, you can say, for example, in the case of charity, well, we've got we've got the, 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 um, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs here, which is about power consolidation, power accumulation. And then we've got the development, the Ministry of Development here, which is about um, um, benevolence in some form or another. It's nonsense. The, the, these are two, These are part of the same thing. These are part because the executive. It all depends on the exchequer, basically, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. Well, in, 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 in these times, certainly. Um, but so there, there's certainly, as you say, going back to Hegel, there's this there's a danger of saying, in lots and lots of ways, it's far too complicated to understand, and therefore we can't change anything. And actually, that is that's bullshit. Like at the very top level, it's really quite simple to understand. Uh, so, Colin, how would you draw all these teams together? This notion of charity, propaganda, all the different things we've been talking about. Yeah, so I've kind of thought about how I how I bring this to a sort of conclusion. I think actually one of the, one of the ways, one of the prisms through which to see this is through um, Charles Dickens. 
And Dickens is a really interesting character, and he kind of, as I say, he brings together quite a lot of the things that we um, that we were talking about. For example, how you know we were talking before about how people the the the, the stories that people tell themselves and the the narratives that people have about themselves, but also where do they get these narratives from? <clears throat> and when it comes to propaganda and charity. Dickens is a, a crucial figure in this um, in this debate. So Dickens is writing predominantly sort of 1830s, 1840s, 1850s. And many of, I mean, I'm sure you know, like most of, or a lot of his writings discuss notions of poverty, particularly urban poverty, the relationship between rich and poor, the obligation that these um, two kind of, um, social groups have towards each other um, and you can see this for example in particularly we see it in A Christmas Carol where uh, Scrooge is, is um, uh, taught these various lessons through the various Christmas ghosts that he he, um, he encounters um, but particularly you go back right, right, right go back to the start when we were talking about this idea of if you criticise charity, you're, you're, you're considered to be slightly misanthropic. Well, you're also considered to be a Scrooge. So we have this notion of, of the Scrooge, which emanates from the work of, of, of Dickens. But Dickens is important on, on, on a number of levels because, first of all, he's no socialist. His predominant theme is about the obligation of the rich to bestow charity towards the poor. And he criticises the rich for not doing it. But he's also sympathetic to the rich as well in saying that they, ha they fundamentally have a right to accumulate lots of wealth. So we're talking about billionaire philanthropists and all that sort of thing. So that it, there, there's a, a relevance there to it. Um, and he's also quite sympathetic to them, particularly if you look at character like Scrooge, who, particularly through the ghost of Christmas past, you see, for example, uh, quite a sympathetic um, take on him in terms of him being a, a, a lonely child and rather a neglected child. So it's trying to provide a rationale for why some people are quite mean. But one of the interesting things, particularly when you go to the debate around um, the, the, well, sorry, the, the stories that people tell themselves, we have this phrase in society, charity begins at home. And I think to myself, well, what does that actually mean? And if you trace back the popularity of that phrase, it emerges through Dickens. Um, now, of course, it's, it's a phrase that's kind of common before Dickens, but he certainly popularises it. And he popularises it in um, Martin Chuzzlewit. And it's a character called Tig Montague who says it. And Montague, this is perhaps the irony here, is that the phrase charity begins at home is kind of become rather a kind of banner slogan for quite a lot of people as epitomising their philosophy towards charity. But actually, if you look at the, the quotation itself from Martin Chuzzlewit, it's said by Tig Montague. And Tig Montague is this unscrupulous fraudster He's essentially an insurance broker uh, in 
and he 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 um, rips people for money. So actually, Dickens is kind of poking fun at, or it's it's part of Dickens' satire of the of the concept of charity. This idea that this kind of really nasty character says, "Well, charity begins at home." The full quote is actually, "Charity begins at home." And justice begins next door. So oh, I did not know that. Essentially saying that charity should be self-serving and that justice, that kind of interplay of charity and justice that we've talked about quite a lot, should begin close to oneself. But if you're in a pri- privileged position to be a donor, then actually perhaps charity shouldn't begin at home. And if you look at definitions of altruism, again, perhaps actually the point of doing charity well is for it not to begin at home at all. But it's just interesting from a propaganda point of view how that phrase has moved over the last kind of 150 years into being really quite a sort of stalwart phrase of of people's own conceptualization of self. And it, but it's really been quite mis, misinterpreted um, through Dickens. And I think that that kind of encapsulates quite a lot of the problems that we see around understandings of charity, but also... It, uh, it brings together quite uh, quite a few of the, the things we've been talking about when it comes to propaganda as well. There you go, yeah. Now, I think I'm conscious of the time, Colin, so I just have a couple of tiny questions to draw to an end, right? The first one is, I guess, you know, someone who's like you who studies propaganda, the variety of propagandas, the typologies of propagandas, the classification of propagandas. If we see propaganda everywhere, does it make us a bit cynical, do you think? I mean, how, so how do you, you know, you, you who like work with this material, who look at propaganda documents, pieces of political communication, you know, how do you guard yourself against becoming cynical? Well, I, well, I, well, I, I, I counter your point there and say that I see propaganda everywhere, but most people don't. I, in, well, if you see it, it's not working, right? Well, well, that's one of the key arguments is that it, it, the best propaganda is that which comes to us through entertainment rather than through, for example, information or through documentary or news, um, because we're, we're a bit more on edge, a bit more guarded. Um, propaganda is best received when one is relaxed. I mean, for example, I'm going to go up and get my my kid from nursery in about an hour and I, wa- I walk past an Oxfam shop. And on the side of the Oxfam shop, it says these all these different slogans about what Oxfam does. And it says, one of them says, empowering women. And I go, well, it's not because you've got a major prostitution scandal where, you know, you've where, where your workers spend their evenings exploiting prostitutes in in uh, zones of destitution around the world, whether it's Chad or, or whether it's post-earthquake Haiti. So that, quite frankly, is nonsense. And um, so I kind of see it everywhere. But the, 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 the important point, I think, is that propaganda or indeed more generally media literacy is really quite poor amongst most people. Um, they aren't really able to decipher the intent and the wider perspective behind messages. And there's a few things that have to be remembered. First thing is that if somebody is communicating with you that you don't know, like a, a, through a propaganda or through a, you know, for a, for a media channel, they are going to a hell of an effort to communicate with you. So why, why are they doing that? The other thing to say, going back to the more psychological aspect of this, is that most of us don't want to feel like we're vulnerable 
everybody's vulnerable, yeah. Everybody's we're, vulnerable. We're all vulnerable. So we have this idea of, oh, well, you know, like a confidence trickster sort of thing. It's like, you know, well, that's what, like, old ladies... You find a lady, have, yeah. <laughs> you know, when, you know they, they, they get told to, like, give out their pension or something like that to somebody on the doorstep. But, but we're, we are all vulnerable. And, in fact, increasingly, we're all more and more vulnerable as... Um, as neoliberalism kind of really bites. And, you know, I think there was uh, a statistic that's something like, you know, most of us are only sort of three or four missed paychecks away from homelessness. Um, so we we try to avoid that sense of vulnerability. And one of the reasons I think my propaganda gets overlooked at times as not being as important as perhaps more kind of concrete aspects of society is that most people would sit there and say that, Perhaps, I don't know if they're aware of it or not, I don't know if they're cognitive of it or not, but certainly they're aware that they are quite vulnerable to this. And so they're just not going to think about it too much. You can perhaps move this into um, the more sort of Freudian sense of the sort of death anxiety that people have. Like, you know, no one's actually ever experienced death. So we don't really know what's going to happen here. Um but we just hope it's a good one. But um, we'll just try and not think about it too much. But on the other hand, all of us engage in all these activities all the time, whether it's like smoking, drinking or whatever else, which are actually quite self-defeatist um, and which really don't help us in, on that drive. So, again, we have this ability to really deflect, deny whatever the defence mechanism is and, 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 and our understanding and our a willingness to engage in debates about propaganda, I think, is quite hampered by that. Yeah. So you mentioned media literacy there. Do you think there's any other tools that we could think of, you know, that would help arm ourselves against uh, propaganda? I mean, I, I, I'd blithely say philosophy and critical thinking and all those types of things, you know? Yeah, I mean, I, I would suggest that it's not necessarily just about doing courses in media literacy. Um, I say to my students all the time, the best thing you can do is ponder and do philosophy. <laughs> yes, but the, the, not necessarily academic philosophy. Not but think, yeah. doing, as you're right, you're not about doing philosophy, but it, it's kind of doing it in a kind of sociological way, I guess. I'm curious, yeah, yeah. Because what 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 we've seen again with advances in communication technology and particularly those of advances being around personalization of communication technology is that the spaces in our lives where we can just ponder have been remarkably reduced over the last um, particularly with for example the invention of like the walkman for example, and then and then and then we've got mobile phones and all these other things. The notification, so, ping notifications, exactly. And all, that, yeah. so, and all these, there's sort of all these the attention economy. The attention economy is what you're talking about, yeah. Sure, and all these kind of incremental things that we see. You know, so the vast majority of people really spend very little time disconnected and just thinking. And I'm not I'm not going to sit there and be some sort of advocate of like the transcendentalist movement or anything like that. That's that's not my point. I think that you also have to back it up with just knowledge and training and all these other things. I don't think you just because ironically, like 
Emerson, who was one of the sort of main tra- transcendentalists, kind of, he actually comes to the wrong conclusions quite often. So, um, yeah, after the woods, basically, yeah, where you've and you know where you can't, yeah, so it's an anti-technological solution, basically, yeah. Right, but so 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 the point here is though is that one of the best things that you can do is, as you say, educate yourself. You know, become more mindful, engage in mindfulness techniques, um, but also just ponder, just think, and my. Um, PhD supervisor was a guy called Phil, Phil Taylor, um, who was who's dead now, but um, was you know very much one of the the major thinkers of of propaganda theory through the eighties nineties, and um, and he always said to his students like, I don't care what you think, I just want to find evidence that you have thought in yeah. some form or I like another. That, yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like it. I tell that to my students as well. I say, like, you know, I, um, not my job to tell you what to think. I just want to see that you do think, you know, yeah. Exactly. And and for, I know I'm going to sound like a middle-aged man now, but, you know, for young people today, it is much more difficult to find spaces in which to think um, because capitalist, the capitalist desire machine has, has enabled itself to infiltrate more and more parts of our everyday experience. Um, to the point of, I don't know, having a bloody watch on your arm, which tells you how well you've slept. Essentially, it's like how many steps have you watched? Yeah, yeah. Kind of, you know, the kind of mass surveillance state that somebody like Shoshana Zuboff talks about. Yeah, I think yeah, it, w- it would be good to end this on a on a positive note like that, so that you know, thinking is is um, the start of the cure, shall we say, to sort of deceptive mm-hmm. propaganda, but. We can't, we can't, we can't be optimistic like that, Colin, can we? No, we have to, we have to end on a down note here, surely. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, well, the down note is ju- just go and read Schopenhauer. He'll, 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 he'll cure you of any optimism, yeah.